Bonjour, dear listeners, and welcome to Defense, the conversation about defense you never knew you always wanted to have. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and today I'm sitting in Toulouse again with my favorite electronic warfare specialist, Dr. Thomas Withington, to discuss how flares were invented, you know, those wonderful firework-like systems they deploy in Top Gun Maverick, and how June Curran, another amazing World War II woman, contributed. Hi, Tom. How are you doing today? It's great to be with you, Alex. I'm very well, thank you. And here we are once again, as you say, talking about electronic warfare. You've and, and in Toulouse once again. And yes, talking about... Well, I'll let you do the introduction. <laughs> um, so yeah, today you, you'd mentioned to me a few months back that you were going to do a presentation in a couple of days, in fact, uh, on Joan Curran, if I am pronouncing it correctly, who contributed to Inventing Chaff and also contributed to the Manhattan Project, which was, as most people know, but maybe not everyone, was one of was the big project that led to the uh, nuclear bomb and the Hiroshima bombing and the end of World War II, effectively. So, Tom, first of all, why John Curran? Like, what led you to look into her? Well, I started. I, well, I first became aware of Joan's work um, many years back, actually, when I was doing some work on bomber, Royal Air Force Bomber Command during the Second World War and their strategic air campaign against Germany. And that strategic air campaign. Um, led to a massive loss of life initially in the war, not only for the Germans who were being bombed, but for the RAF crews performing the raids night after night on very heavily defended targets around Germany and later around occupied Europe. And this loss of life, what it precipitated was Bomber Command looking very hard at mechanisms that they could employ to try and reduce the terrible loss rate that they were suffering. And in fact, the loss rate got so bad at the start of the war that there were real concerns that at some point they would simply run out of aircrew and aircraft. The attrition would be so comprehensive, there would be nobody left to continue the strategic air campaign against Germany. And just to sort of take us back to that time, you had a situation really from about 1939, the war is declared, it's 1941 when the Americans come into the war, that Britain was the only belligerent country in Europe that was continuing in the Western European theatre an effort, any effort against the Nazi regime. So uh, the Russians had come into the war, the Soviet Union rather had come into the war. They were on the Eastern Front and the British were on the West. And the strategic air campaign became very important because it really it was the only way that the Brits could actually attack the Nazi war machine in any shape or form. They would no longer had a presence on the continent. So it became imperative to try and protect the lives of the Bomber Command aircrew and hence to try and protect their aircraft. And part of that effort included um, looking at techniques to disrupt German radar, primarily the radar that the Luftwaffe were using and the reason they were using radar was to detect these RAF bombers so that they could either direct anti-aircraft guns towards them 
or they could direct fighters towards them. So the radar really becomes the, the eyes of the air defense, particularly as the RAF are performing their operations largely at night. So obviously to try and see something visually becomes very difficult. Sometimes there's cloud cover, there'd be smoke from a target, there'd be all kinds of things that would obscure your actual visual way of finding these aircraft. So radar becomes the technology that Germans rely on for that. And there's an imperative from Bomber Command to try and protect their aircraft from detection and tracking by radar and this is where chaff comes in so hopefully a little bit of context there for your <laughs> listeners so a question i have is now that this may be a silly question um this was not an issue in world war one yet right bombing raids like they did in world war ii it was not an issue yet so radar also did not play as much of a big role in world war one well, radar isn't really used during the First World War. Um, the principle is, is um, established by a German scientist called uh, Christian Hussmeier in 1904. And he actually realizes that you can use radio waves to detect things and work out how far away they are and all of this kind of things as we know radar today. And he initially did that um, in order to provide a mechanism for um, large ocean liners to see icebergs as we know from the titanic disaster yeah. yeah this is a big problem and so he'd invented this principle and he or he'd, he'd rather he'd come up with the principle that radio waves could be used to do this but during the first world war we have a strategic air campaign that's fought by both the allies and the germans against targets in germany targets in the uk etc and that's done by very early bombing aircraft it's done by airships as well um but as you as you rightly said, radar isn't harnessed at that point um, to be uh, to be weaponized, if you like. But it's in 1935 when two British scientists um, actually perform an experiment where they use BBC radio transmissions from a transmitter uh, to detect an aircraft that's flying around a place called Daventry in uh, the Midlands, in, in, in central England, and. Robert Watson Watt, who's sort of considered one of the fathers of radar, he's a Scottish scientist, and he realizes, hey, there's potential here. We can use radio waves to detect aircraft. And in the years leading up to World War II, there's a huge effort that goes on in the UK, also in Germany. The Germans have realized the same thing, that they can use radio waves in this way, in order, if you like, to get radar ready for war. And that's why we see it being used uh, en masse in the Second World War by all of the belligerents, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now I've been doing a bit of work on radar, but some aspects of it may sometimes still be a bit blurry for me, and I'm thinking for some of our audience, not even blurry, just completely obscure. So how, in you know, if you were to explain to your grandmother how a radar works, how would you explain it? I'm really pleased you asked me that question because this actually <laughs> this this actually helps us segue into how chaff works as okay. well. So it's it's nice that you brought this up because in order to understand chaff, which was the technique or the if you like the equipment, the capability to use modern military parlance that Joan Caron helped perfect, you need to understand how radar works. But radar actually employs a beautifully simple principle. You have a radio wave which you transmit. The radio wave leaves your antenna. It travels at the speed of light, which is roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. All radio waves travel at the same speed. 
doesn't matter what frequency they are, they all go at that speed. Your radio wave travels through the air. Let's say you're detecting an aircraft, for instance. So the radio wave travels through the air. It then collides with something like an aircraft. So it hits the side of this aeroplane and the metal of the aeroplane, metal is conductive, it conducts the incoming radio signal and it reflects it back to the radar. So the radar signal comes all the way back to the radar which transmitted it. And if you measure the amount of time it takes for that pulse of radar energy, so let's say you send out one pulse, you measure the amount of time it takes to leave from the radar, out it goes through the air, hits the aircraft and comes back. And say it takes X amount of time, you divide that in half and you can work out because of the speed that the signal goes at, the speed of light, by dividing the time for the round trip, out from the radar to the target, back again, you can work out how far that target is away from you. Now with other techniques, you can also work out what altitude it's at, you can work out what speed it's going. You can tell a lot of things from a radar. And really this is where chaff comes in because what the British needed to do was find a way of stopping a radar doing that. Okay, but before we go into chaff, mm -hmm. I have another question. Of course. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Did it, I mean, I know now the technologies have evolved significantly, but at the time, was it able to tell you what the target was? It's hitting metal, but does it know what it is? It's a good point you made because um, the radars we use today are incredibly sophisticated compared to those of, of 80 years ago. The basic principle is still the same. But in those days, um, it, the detail that you could get from a target was much lower than what you would be able to get to now. In radar's very early days, you would know something's out there. Um, you and, and according to how you've positioned the radar, if you if the because the radar is always seeing in a straight line. Mm. So it's like if you imagine you're standing on a hill and you look directly towards the horizon. Um, perhaps there's some trees, there's a church spire, whatever it might be. That's in your field of vision, so you can see those. But if you move your head upwards, you may see nothing, but occasionally an aeroplane crosses in front of you, or a cloud maybe. Radar is doing the same thing. So by, if you take the German radars, for example, which Chaff was designed to frustrate, these would be positioned and tilted up looking at the sky. So if they saw something, there's a pretty good chance that it's an aircraft. And on top of that, their own aircraft would carry what's known as a transponder. And this would send a radio message back to the radar with a code and that will be that fighter's identity, if you like. It's like a calling card. This is me, I'm flying around. So you'd look at your radar screen and go, okay, we know that that's one of our, our people, not to engage them, but hang on, what's this over here? There's a, there's a dot on the screen. Well, that's not sharing any information with us. Good chance that's hostile. So that's basically how they, how they do it, how they try and ID what was happening out there. Okay, okay. All right, so what, what is a chaff then? What does it do in terms of, so I get, as you were saying before, that it's something that was developed to try and prevent these planes from being picked up on enemy radar. So how can you do that? It's not jamming, right? It's got nothing to do with jamming. Well, it's a, you could argue it's a form of jamming, okay. perhaps, yeah. 
good debating point. <laughs> so basically how, how it works is to go back to the, the principle we talked about just now. You send out the radio pulse, it hits the object and comes back. And suddenly on your radar screen you have, you have effectively a plot or known as a blip. You have little dots and that's your aircraft. There it is. You don't probably have any more information than that if it's not sending. It doesn't have a transponder or if it's one of the bad guys. It's transponder, we switched off. So that's all you've got. Now what Chaff does is it creates thousands of those blips. So suddenly your radar screen is filled with thousands of these blips. Now one of those is the aircraft, but which one is it? (laughs) Suddenly it becomes quite hard to tell. It reminds me of um, a good way of, of demonstrating the theory behind Chaff is if you've ever seen the remake of the movie The Thomas Crown Affair. The one with um, Julian Moore and... Famous Irish actor played James Bond. <laughs> You're a start of a turn, Alex. <laughs> it will come back to me. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. Correct. Thank you. So if you remember, I'm not giving a spoiler alert to your listeners if they, if they watch the film because um, I won't dis- uh, disclose the rest of the plot but you remember them perhaps you remember there's a scene in the film where um, you have somebody who the person who's trying to steal a painting mm-hmm. and they're wearing a bowler hat and a suit yes so they come in they try and steal the painting from the gallery and the security guards see what's going on and they see the person lift the painting roll it up put it in a container and off they go yeah and then they look again at the CCTV cameras. Now there's two people with a bowler hat. Now there's three, five, ten, and suddenly there's there's hundreds of them. Playing with a very good Nina Simone too, actually, that scene. Good. It's always, always good to have a shout out to Nina on these uh, these podcasts. So absolutely. Um, so Chaff works in a very similar way. And how it works is that every radio wave and every radar signal by virtue has a wavelength. Um, and if we could see it, we can't see it, but if we could see it, it would look just like the waves that we see on the ocean. It goes up, it goes down, it has a peak and it has a trough. And the frequency is how many of those peaks and troughs happen per second. Now, for radar, it's it's thousands of times per second, but it does. that's all it is. And basically what chaff is, is if you imagine a long, thin strand of metal. Mm-hmm. And that long, thin strand of metal could almost look like Christmas tinsel. Okay. Um, it is going to be cut to either half or a quarter of the wavelength of the radar that you're trying to confuse. So that would imply knowing which radar you're trying to confuse. And that's why you do signals intelligence work beforehand, okay. why you're always collecting recordings of the enemy's radar to understand what frequencies they're using, how they're behaving. So you get an idea, you know that they're transmitting on 200 megahertz, for instance. So you have your chaff that is cut to either half or quarter of of whatever the wavelength for 200 megahertz is. And what happens is an airplane flies along and it detects, because it can detect, has a system, a radar warning receiver that tells the pilots they've been detected by a radar. It's an incoming radio signal. So what they do is they launch chaff and effectively they into the atmosphere, out of the aircraft, they send thousands of these little metal strands that we've been talking about. 
And because they're very lightweight, they're aluminium, they fill the atmosphere around the aircraft. And they float in the atmosphere often for several minutes. And suddenly the radar signal is hitting all of those bits of metal as well as the aircraft. And that is why the radar operator screen is filled with all of these little dots. Because right. the radar, as far as the radar is concerned, what it's seeing is another aircraft. It doesn't know. Okay. But yet the radar, the actual aircraft is in there somewhere, but it's been camouflaged by all of this chaff. Now I have another question. <laughs> I'm grilling you tonight. Okay, so the, 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 the aircraft is flying. It's suddenly throwing all this chaff into the air. But the aircraft is still flying mm -hmm. and the chaff is presumably not following the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So at what point does it become clear that chaff was sent and the aircraft is, is, is still moving? I mean, there, there must be a point where on the radar you can still see the chaff, but you can also see that something's moving, whereas the chaff isn't. No? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and modern radars have very sophisticated techniques to realize that what they're seeing, they have algorithms and realize what we're seeing is chaff. We're going to ignore that because okay. suddenly I'm seeing a thousand aircraft and there was only one before. Mm, <laughs> something's up. Going back to World War II, what would happen is you would have um, a raid of maybe several hundred aircraft, uh, of which perhaps two, three hundred of those, or maybe even more, are dispersing chaff. So there's suddenly a huge cloud of it. And on top of it, the first aircraft that have gone in for the raid, say, let's say they're hitting a particular target. So they're hitting the target as a line of aircraft going in one after the other, dropping their bombs. Mm. The aircraft leading are dispersing chaff okay. so the aircraft that are following are flying into a huge cloud of chaff as mm -hmm. well as dispersing their own you only need for them to be camouflaged while they're in danger once okay. they're out of danger it's okay you know but they know that there's going to be a concentration of radars looking at that target so you need to create that big cloud around that package of aircraft while they're in the danger zone so they can fly out and in fact in world war ii Bomber Command actually had a unit of aircraft they called the Special Window Force, and their whole job was just to drop window, and they would drop absolute torrents of the stuff, millions and millions of these metal fibres, tiny metal fibres into the air, to create this complete snowstorm on, uh, on the radar screens. I used to say to people, it's like one of those snowstorms you buy, yeah. you know, when you're at the seaside and yeah. so you're looking at the scene and then you shake it up and suddenly you can't see anything because there's all of this glitter. That's exactly how it would have been for a German radar operator when they were dropping chaff over a target. Okay, so you were calling it chaff and then you called it window. Are they the same thing? Is there a reason? There's a great story behind Ooh, this. I do like glad, story. glad you teed me up for this. <laughs> so when Joan was working on chaff, so a bit of a backstory about what happened was that the principle of using these metallic wires, these metallic fibers to interfere with radar had been worked out very quickly after the first radar experiments by Robert Watson Watt in the mid-1930s. I think in 1937, there was um, a physicist scientist called uh, Gerald Touche, who um, was uh, a university lecturer before the war and had become involved in the war effort. So he'd, he'd worked out, hang on, there's something up when we 
if we put these metal fibers in the air, it causes disruption to the radar. And Joan was sent away to go and if effectively weaponize this. Okay, this could be useful. How can we make this into a workable countermeasure for mm. radar? And this is why her work was so important. Um, so the story as to why it was called Window was that eventually the experiments that Joan performed had realized that chaff was a viable countermeasure, okay. that this could be used and it could help protect RAF aircraft. But it was wrapped up in a huge amount of secrecy for understandable reasons, because the last thing the RAF wanted the Germans to get wind of was mm. that they cracked this, that they had this possibility to protect their aircraft. Ironically, the Germans had worked out the same thing. Yeah, the Germans had worked out that you, At the could, same you time. could use, broadly speaking, yeah, yeah. that you could use um, chaff to you know, disrupt radar. And so they needed a code name for it. Now, at the time, the policy in the UK was whenever you had something very secretive and you wanted to give a code name, you wanted the code name to be something that was completely unrelated to the actual function of right. whatever you've invented is, 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 is going to do. Yeah. Um, so during the Second World War, there is an absolute array of the most wonderfully crazy code names for electronic warfare equipment you've ever uh, heard. I mean, Ground Mandrel, Aspie Distra, Abdullah, um, oh what a, a Jostle, Jostle Mark One, Pipe Rack. I mean, the list goes on. There's a whole other podcast on those weird and wonderful codes yeah. of World War II. And what happened was, um, Robert Coburn, who was the head of an organization called the Telecommunications Research Establishment, which was tasked with developing electronic countermeasures during the war, realized they needed a code name. And what he did was sitting in his office, legend has it, he just looked around the room and just sort of went, we'll call it window. It could have been filing cabinet, it could have been blotting pad, it could have been fountain pen, you name it but it was called Window. And ironically, when the decision was taken to finally use Window um, in July 1943, before the joint Royal Air Force, United States Army Air Force bombing raids on Hamburg, um, Winston Churchill allegedly said, um, very well, let us open the window when the decision had finally been taken to use it. So that's that's the story. But the, U the US called it chaff. And I think one of the reasons for it was because it reminded people of when you have uh, harvesters going through the fields and you, you, you're um, harvesting wheat, mm. you have obviously the top of the wheat that you take off that's then used for flour, but you have the rest of the plant yeah. that's thrown yeah. out of the back of the combine harvester and that's known as chaff. And, that's, and it, it, look, it looks similar, you know, this cloud of sort of fibers in the air. So I imagine that's why it happened. But, but sadly, it is still, it is, I mean, no disrespect to our, our American friends, but <laughs> it would have been nice if Window had, had continued Stop. after World War II, but it's now mostly known as chaff. Okay, okay. No, I like these little stories. It's always great. So what was Joan's role in all this? Well, what Joan did was that she she realized that you could make this into something aircraft could use. That that could she she turned the theory into practice. I think that's how I would summarize it. And she performed a load of experiments to determine, yes, this can help save aircrew lives. And crucially it did. That's the thing. We can't really calculate how many people she saved. It will be in the tens of thousands during World War II. But the story, the reason why she resonates so much with me, and that's a deliberate 
RF pun resonates because at the end of the day, it's what Chaff does when a radar signal hits it. It's because her, in, her, her invention, her perfection of it outlived her. And every day, pilots' lives are saved thanks to Chaff. As we think about the Ukrainian theater operations at the moment, there will be Ukrainian pilots alive today because they use Chaff. Um, and in many ways, the best inventions are the simplest. And so it, it outlived her, which I think is is a wonderful legacy. But the sad side of it is that um, she I don't think she gets the recognition that she deserves for what she did. Yeah. Um, and I suspect we're dealing with you know the the, the sexism of history in, in a lot of ways. Yes. And yeah, and, and it's always easy, it's always very easy. Uh, historically, to forget to forget women's achievements, and they tend to get subsumed. But but my I'm sort of probably sounding a bit evangelical about it. But I'm I'm very keen to sort of get Joan's name out there and and talk about what she did and her work continued. After you know, it, she didn't just work on chaff. There were other things she did as well. So okay, well before we move on to the other things she did, so, but who was she? Was she had she studied to be in electronic warfare? Had she studied to be a physician? Who was she? So Joan, um, we don't know a huge amount about her early life. Uh, she was born uh, in Swansea in South Wales. Um, her father was an optometrist. Uh, so you could say to an extent she was surrounded by science from quite an early age. She was incredibly bright. She's very dexterous. I think that will have helped with the work she did on chaff later on, because if you see a chaff strand, it's a terribly thin, sort of small, brittle, fragile piece of metal. And I think sort of any anyone who's got manual dexterity would have a gift in working with such a sort of delicate, yeah. fragile material. But she went to um, Swansea Girls High School, um, was academically extremely able, and she got a, a scholarship to go and study at Newnham College in Cambridge, where she read physics. And while she was there, she also, you will appreciate this, I'm sure, she competed in the Cambridge women's rowing team. Ah, uh, woman after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> and she competed at the varsity uh, rowing tournaments in Henley-on-Thames. Um, we don't know much about how her team did. I'm sure they, I'm sure they acquitted themselves brilliantly. Um, but one of the one of the tragedies for Joan was that um, she finished her degree and she continued postgraduate study at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, uh, but she was never awarded her full honours degree because women were not allowed to have full honours degrees at the time, which um, frankly seems utterly inconceivable and wrongheaded to say the least these days. But sadly, reflecting the sort of inherent misogyny in academia at the time was the case. Um, so, and she had to wait um, a good 60 years until she finally got her honours degree, one year before she died, in oh, fact. Well, at least she was there to see it. She, she was, she was. Um, but she went immediately into, um, research, into working in physics. We don't know, I don't know a huge amount about what she was working on before 
the war started because it was so little time really until she was immediately drafted into the war effort. Um, but so that part still remains a mystery. If any of your listeners do know, I would be very keen to hear. So we don't know much, but and it's because of because of war. It's very it's very hard to say what she would have done if war hadn't have occurred. You know? I, I'm still convinced she would have done something equally exceptional. But it's but it's very hard because we've got that event and that shaped her career and her life in, in such a profound way, I think. Yeah. And so you were saying also that she then worked, so she worked on the chaff and, and I want to come back to that later on, like on the chaffs, but we also said she worked on the Manhattan Project. So mm. did she, she moved on from chaffs to Manhattan Project in a sequence, basically. Yeah, in December 1944, I think it was, um, she and her husband, Sam Curran, who was also a physicist, um, go to the United States and they go to the uh, University of Berkeley or University of California at Berkeley campus and um, to one of the laboratories that is, which I think was the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, which is working on the Manhattan Project. At the time, all of, if you like, the allied, you know, the greatest allied physicists and engineers and anybody with any sort of input into the atomic side of things was drafted to work on that project. It was an absolute colossal undertaking. So her and Sam went to California and it was there actually they, um, they had their daughter um, who was born with, with quite profound learning disabilities, which, which I'll come to in a moment. Um, but she worked on, while she was there, she worked on a, a, a process called gas diffusion, which is a, a process for enriching uranium. And in order to have a nuclear weapon or an atomic weapon as they were back in those days, you need enriched uranium. And that's uranium that's, that's manufactured or processed. Uranium occurs naturally, but it's processed to an incredibly pure level. You know, it's usually about 80 to 87% of a particular isotope of uranium. That's the thing that makes it go bang, effectively. And so Joan started working on that and her efforts later yielded, um, would have directly contributed to the realization of Little Boy. And Little Boy was the code name of the first atomic bomb that was dropped on Japan, 6th of August, 1945. And that was a uranium implosion device. So it used this highly enriched weapons grade uranium in order to create the explosion. So the work of Joan and others was incredibly important in overcoming those scientific hurdles in order to realize that device and obviously hastened the end of the Second World War. Okay, so it seems from the conversation we've been having that she's, she had, you know, she contributed and had a pretty significant role in helping win World War II, obviously can't credit her for changing the course of history, but she played a very important role. Yet, when you told me about Joan Curran and how you were going to do the presentation and how you know it would be an interesting podcast episode, which I completely agree, by the way, is, as far as I'm concerned anyway, hopefully the audience feels the same, I couldn't find anything on her. Maybe like there was a Wikipedia entry, sure, but there was hardly anything else. I mean, she hasn't written anything. She hasn't written any articles, as far as I can tell. How come? Welcome to my world. This was one <laughs> of the most intriguing yet frustrating aspects about researching her life. There is so little material out there. 
Um, we know bits and pieces about what she did. There's material in the National Archive, which I've seen, which talks about what she did on chaff, but that is by and large, understandably quite anodyne scientific endeavor and inquiry and analysis as it would be, which is an incredibly important part of her life, but that's really all we've got. Um, my search for sort of, if she has any papers, um, anything like that has so far not really unearthed anything and that's an ongoing project obviously yeah. um so i always think in these situations it it's as i said it, it's equally intriguing and frustrating um because you do want to learn more about her life mm -hmm. um one of the things that fascinates me is at what point did she know did she realize with chaff that We've got something here. We, we can actually do this. And also, the, the British prevaricated on using it for a long time, yeah. you know, for a year or so. They would not take the decision because they were terrified that they would show their hands to the Germans, yeah. show what they can do, and the Germans would respond in kind against their own radar. And I find myself wondering, what must it have been like to know that you've come up with something that can save people's lives but it's not being used. And you know that night after night, people are losing their lives and aircraft are being, being lost. And perhaps you can't prevent all of those losses, but you can reduce them. Yeah. And how did she feel and how did she react to that? Because, you know, I know how I would react it. I would have been furious. Yeah. And, and did she feel the same way? So we, we know more about her, but there's still so much to learn, I think. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I was going to say, that's exactly where I was going to go, like infuriated, frustrated, you name it, you know, like bring out the thesaurus and come out with all this, you know, but yeah. So the other thing I wanted to come back to is, and this is kind of tying into the whole sustainability thing, but you know, and, and, and I think I remember having this conversation with you about how part of the reason why they were worried is that it was all these little bits and pieces of aluminium being floated into the air and then landing wherever it is that they'd been thrown. So obviously they were scared that the Germans would find them and would reverse engineer, so to speak, because there wasn't much to reverse engineer, but understand what they were doing. But also this is aluminium being lost on the ground and I'm assuming now technology has evolved significantly. So what do chaff look like today? Chaff is these days very um, advanced compared to what was used back in those days. The mm -hmm. principle is still the same, but now you're, we're using very advanced materials, carbon fibers, um, all, all kinds of things, many things that are classified in terms of how they perform. Um, so yeah, from it would be interesting to talk to some of the uh, manufacturers. We've got one in Toulouse, for instance, Etienne Lacroix, who, who make chaff. Um, what do they do to make it sustainable, not only in terms of its expenditure, but also from its manufacturing perspective? Um, so that may be one for a, a future podcast. One thing I would like to say just before we wrap up, though, is that I mentioned uh, Joan Curran's daughter um, uh, earlier on. And um, as I was saying, she was born with, with quite profound learning disabilities. And one of the things that um, Joan did in her later life, once she came back to the UK in the 1950s and her and Sam settled in Glasgow and um, 
Sam worked as a, a professor of a science, professor of physics uh, in what is now Strathclyde University. And Joan d- devoted herself to many courses um, right. in that part of her life. But one of the things she did was she worked with people with learning disabilities um, throughout her life. And she actually helped found an organization that's now called Enable Scotland. And what they do is they help people with learning disabilities access higher education, uh, help them in the job market, do a lot of important work. So um, if if anybody is interested in finding out more about the organization, I'm certainly very interested to find out about the important work they can do. Um, Type Enable Scotland into Google. It will take you onto their webpage and you can see some of Joan's legacy there as well with the work they continue today. Yeah, so she's, yeah, she's, her legacy spans from, as you said, chaff, the nuclear bomb, uh, Enable Scotland. I mean, it, she was an amazing woman. And again, as she must have felt when they weren't using what she had helped discover, it's a bit infuriating to not be able to find out more about who she was and, and, you know, more details about how she got into what she was doing and and how she developed these things. Well, hopefully you can update us at some point, but um, I I fear that's it for today, unfortunately. But it was, as always, very good talking to you, Tom, and great learning about chaffs and about John Curran. And um, yeah, I, uh, I look forward to our next conversation about the next amazing woman in World War II. Well, Alex, thank you very much. And just one last shout out. Um, if anybody is interested in hearing the lecture at the RF Museum about Joan Curran, which I'll be giving on the uh, 7th of April, they can go onto the RF Museum website. It will be kept there for some time afterwards and they can watch it. But thank you once again. Always a pleasure. Hang on. Are you going to be saying things in the lecture that you haven't said today? <laughs> You'll have to tune in to find out. (laughs) Really good at marketing. Well, thanks so much, Tom, again. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. So there you have it, folks. Another incredible story about an incredible woman who contributed to World War II. It's always saddening to hear how late in their life these women received the recognition they deserved. But I do hope episodes like these, and many others such as those produced by the Association of Old Crows, help honor their memory. The next episode will focus on the Undersea Defense Technology Show. So until then, don't forget to spread the word and au revoir et à bientôt.